0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I'd like to just start off with this. Don't underestimate mom power. I got an amen. I got an amen from a woman. She's like, amen. There's probably an elbow also involved. I didn't see that, but there might have been an elbow. Okay. Uh, Mom power is a significant thing. It is not just the what can be accomplished because of a mom's love for her children, but it is also just the sheer commitment that is typically associated with that love. You women, you moms, are perpetually juggling so much, and we guys... Uh, if we're dads, we get a glimpse of this every now and then. Maybe you ladies, you go out of town or you're out in the evening and we're in charge of bedtime and homework or getting kids to school and getting dressed. And when we're taking the kids to school, they've got like each other's shoes on, like one doesn't, is not wearing pants. There's no lunches anywhere. Okay. And we, we forget uh, the mom power. We get a glimpse of it. But so many of you ladies are not, are juggling so much, not just uh, raising your own, children or worrying about your grown children, but also um, juggling. Many of you uh, are homeschool moms. You're educating your children as well. Many of you are, are, are juggling a career as well. You Moms, you juggle so much. And I saw one picture recently that I think pretty much summarizes the mom power, okay? And and, and let me just show you this picture. First of all, just check this out, okay? Um Now, you look at that, and you're like, okay, that seems like a a Father's Day picture. Like, what what am I looking at? Here's a guy. He's at um, a a baseball game uh, with his family. It's a dad. He's there with his family, and he's catching a fly ball, or he's trying to catch a fly ball that came in his direction. And you say, what does that have to do with mom and mom power? Well, let me show you the full picture Go on to the rest of of the picture there. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. I just think we should clap. I mean, that pretty much summarize it right there. That is his uh, incredible wife juggling their child, snatching the foul ball out for him. I think she's even got a diaper bag on there, I think I saw as well. Okay, there's probably a toddler on her leg as well. I don't know, but that pretty much summarizes it. You don't want to underestimate uh, mom power. It is an incredible force in our lives. I hope you honor your mom. Um, or honor the mother in your life um, because there's significant power there. And I tell you this, I start this off not just because it's Mother's Day and we want to honor all of you ladies, um, but also because there is a power in our life. A power, let me say it this way, there's a power available to us that we don't ever want to underestimate. There's a power available to you and a power available to me that we can access. It's not like it's a a tremendously difficult, complicated thing to access. It's not some uh, difficult formula that we have to access in in order to unleash this power in our lives. But so often we fail to do that. Or we just may miss it completely. Some go their entire lives missing it. Some um, uh, go to church, but miss it. Some uh, would call themselves Christians, but miss it. Some would call themselves spiritual or religious, but miss it. And especially as we're talking about mental health in this series, we've been talking about mental health. There are so many things deep down in our lives that we often feel powerless to overcome. There are are mental health struggles that so many of us, and really the honest truth is, at some point all of us walk through. Whether it's loneliness or depression or addiction or anxiety or or whatever it may be. Like at some point, in, in varying degrees, but at some point each one of us walks through that to some degree. And in those moments often we can feel powerless. But please lean in because there's a power that it's not possible to overestimate this power, but often we do underestimate it. But today, Let's just let that power loose in our lives. I want to show you a story in the Old Testament that illustrates this power so beautifully. It's in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 9. So if you have a Bible or you have uh, your phone or another device and you have a Bible app on that phone, I want you to grab, grab that and go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? For Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Now let's pause here for a second, and let's just get our bearings. Um, this, This David is the famous King David. That's who we're reading about right here. King David, just to kind of position it in world history, is about 1,000 B.C., roughly about 1,000 B.C., um, in biblical history, this is long after Abraham, long after Moses, long, it's after the period of the judges, so you've got guys like Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Deborah, um, after the story of Ruth, and you have a guy, the very first king of Israel is a guy by the name of Saul, guy by the name of Saul. He was a very—he's exactly what you would want out of a king, at least in how he looked in his appearance. He was uh, big and tall. He was one of the tallest, uh, most powerful-looking men in Israel, and so they rallied around him and they made Saul their king. But as it turns out, Saul was not a good king at all. He was a cowardly leader. He was uh, spiritually unfaithful to God. He. He strayed into idolatry. He did not lead God's people to God. That's one of the functions that a king is supposed to do in Israel is to lead God's people to God. But he did not do that. And so God anointed a prophet named Samuel, who this book is named for, um, uh, anointed this prophet named Samuel and said, I am going to raise up a new king. There's a little shepherd boy that is completely overlooked that is actually out in the pasture with the sheep right now, a boy, and he is the one who will be the next king. And so kind of surprising to everyone, little shepherd boy David gets anointed to be the future king of Israel. A little time after that, there is a guy by the name of Goliath, a giant who's threatening Israel, and the shepherd boy David, with his, armed with his faith, God used his sling and he killed Goliath, and at that point, everybody knew who David was. They actually wrote a song about him. It was a top 40 hit for a long time about how much they thought David was better than Saul. Well, Saul, you can imagine, didn't like that so much, and so Saul had kind of a keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of vibe going on, brought David into his house, and um, had David around his table, And uh, routinely tried to kill David to the point where as David grew up, he had to run for his life into his adulthood. This went on for probably decades. David running from Saul. And as he was running from Saul, defending himself, he became a mighty warrior. Had all of these warriors come around him wanting to follow, follow his leadership. Now the one interesting nuance of this, and it's relevant for this story, is that Saul's son, Jonathan was really a remarkable person. Because remember, if Saul's the king, Jonathan is heir to the throne. By culture and custom, the kingdom will be Jonathan's. But through what can only be described as just miraculous insight given from God, Jonathan realizes and becomes convinced that God has planned for David to be king. And so Jonathan and David begin this very rich, deep friendship. In fact, Jonathan spares David's life and protects David. So one day when David learns that Saul and Jonathan have both been killed, he grieves, especially for his dear friend, Jonathan. Well, David comes into power, and what would be customary and cultural, uh, even really um, throughout history, but in this time period, if you are a new king from another family, and David's not just from another family, he's from a whole other tribe of, of Saul, it would be customary to execute every living relative, especially every living male relative, and to cut off that line, the line of Saul. Why? Because they would perpetually be rivals to his rule and would constantly be trying to divide the country and the kingdom. And so it would be customary to deal with severely the house of his predecessor, Saul. But David takes a different path. Shockingly, remarkably, he says, okay, who's left living? Who's still alive from Saul, because many of them had been had fled for their lives; many of them been been killed. And as David steps into power, he says, "Who's left? Is there anyone left in Saul's house that I can show kindness to? Not that I can execute, but that I can show kindness to." So there was a servant in the house of Saul named Ziba, and they bring Ziba in, and he asks, "Who's left from your master's household?" Now Ziba is entering into this you know, he's very likely going to be executed as well. And the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, we now know, you know, the character of David, especially at this season of his life. We know his character. Um, And so, but it would be easy for them to think that this was treachery. Oh yeah, you want to do kindness to me, who's a threat to you, a principal threat to you. Let's see how this plays out. We're going to pick it up in verse three. This is 2 Samuel 9, 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant." Now we get to the main character in our story. It's a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. Now, first of all, Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul. He is the son of Jonathan, David's friend. So first thing you need to know is that Mephibosheth would have been heir to the throne, principal rival. Second thing you need to know is it's one of the most fun names to pronounce in the entire Old Testament. And I think I, we should all pronounce it together. Don't you think we should? It's fun. It's fun. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Mephibosheth. It's, it's a great one. In fact, if there are any expectant mothers out there, I mean, it's a, it's a winner, okay? Mephibi for short. I don't know, but it's a good one, okay? Mephibosheth. Okay, so he is Saul's son, Jonathan, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. If there is one person that David you'd expect to execute, it would be Mephibosheth. He enters in not knowing if this is, oh sure, he wants to be kind to me. I bet he wants to be kind to me. My grandfather chased him around for the better part of two decades trying to kill him. I'm sure he's wanting to have kindness to me. So he comes in and he falls down on his face. Now, it says that he is crippled in his feet. He is disabled. A few chapters earlier, you can go back this week in 2 Samuel, roll back a few chapters. It actually tells you what happened so that you're ready for this part of the story. When Saul and Jonathan were executed... All of their families flee and the remaining family members run for their life because all of a sudden you've got the king and the principal heir have been killed. That is absolutely going to send all kinds of disruption into the kingdom and all of their lives are at stake. Well, Mephibosheth at that moment was five years old. So the next heir was five years old, the prince. And it says his nurse picks him up, and they take off running for their lives. While they are fleeing, it says that Mephibosheth falls and is crippled from that point on. Maybe he trips and falls down a cliff, Maybe he trips and falls and gets trampled. Maybe he falls off a cart or off of a horse. It doesn't give us the detail, but the one detail it does preserve, because this is significant, is he's crippled as he's fleeing for his life while the house that he belongs to has fallen. So here's what that means. First of all, he's crippled not because of anything that he's done to himself it was actually from the failure of his grandfather, Saul. It's actually his farther up his bloodline. It's actually his father's, his grandfather's failure that led to the fall of their house. And it's as he's fleeing for his life that he gets crippled. And so that is not only a product of something he didn't do, It's not just, it wasn't his fault, it was, uh, maybe it was neglect of this nurse, or at very least, it's because Saul fell. It's it's not something he did. But secondly, it is a memorial of that failure. Oh, what happened to Mephibosheth? I remember the young four and five-year-old prince that was remembered throughout Israel. What happened to him? Well, it was when he was running for his life because of the failure of his grandfather, that he was permanently crippled. It is a memorial to him all of his life of his grandfather's failure, but more than that, it's very public, he was a public individual, publicly known, probably announced throughout Israel when he was born, and so he would be known. And it is a public, his, his uh, disability, a public memorial to all of Israel of the failures of his family. So he's not only disabled, he wears the shame all of his life. Interestingly, the name actually, Mephibosheth, the Boshef part, actually means shame. And Mephibosheth, the name, is associated with two things. Idolatry, one form of his name actually has the name Baal in it. It's associated with, his name means basically two things. Idolatry and shame, which were the failures. The failure of his family and then the consequences of his family. So this figure is a a representative of shame. Mephibosheth comes in, throws himself before David. He says, I am your servant, trying to maybe in some way convince David that he is not going to be a threat to him, but is completely at the mercy of David. But I want you to see what David does. Verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It was not lost on this young man what his fate should have been. But what does David do? David says, no, Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table, the royal table. I'm bringing you to my table. I'm going to overlook your shame that your name communicates, let alone your, your, as you walk with a limp, if you can walk at all, or as people carry you in, I will, I'm going to overlook that shame that you wear and I'm gonna bring you to the royal table. And I'm, I'm going to acknowledge your bloodline. And I'm going to restore all the property that was Saul's to you. But there's more. Let's, let's read the rest of the story. Let's pick it up in verse nine. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants um, shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants then Ziba said to the king according to all that my lord the king commands his servant so will your servant do so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the kings what's the word there Sons like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Interesting note to end on. Man, David goes above and beyond. He welcomes him to his table and treats him like a son. He's just welcomed in. On top of that, he's restored all of Saul's property and his belongings and and all of the land. But then he provides for the fact that Mephibosheth has a disability. Mephibosheth can't go out in the field and work these fields, so he provides Ziba, who has a significant household himself, and Ziba overlooks all of Mephibosheth's property. He makes provision for Mephibosheth's uh, um, disability. Um, Beyond that, we find something, I mean, so beautiful. Mephibosheth ends up having a son Uh, Ends up having a son of his own, and he names him Micah. Now, this is what's so beautiful. Remember, Mephibosheth, he carries this name around all his life, this name that is associated with idolatry and shame. But when he has his own son, he names him Micah. And you know what Micah means? Who is like the Lord. He's experienced. David wanted to show kindness, but did you notice what he said earlier in the chapter? He said, I want to show God's kindness to, to him. Mephibosheth may still walk with a limp, may still carry a shameful name, but may still be from Saul's bloodline, but it changes course with him. He doesn't pass on that shame, he doesn't pass on. That idolatry. The next generation gets something different. It's there's a pivot. There's a fulcrum. There's a shift. At Mephibosheth, because of the kindness of God. But you know, I can't help but but notice how this chapter ends. You know, chapter 10, that's the end of chapter 9. Chapter 10 goes on to, like, uh, something else. Like, it doesn't, it kind of leaves Mephibosheth there. And, um, you know, he actually does appear later in the story a couple times. But it ends with this phrase reminding us something that we already know. It ends, like, the final word here of his um, David showing kindness to him is that, and he's crippled. And we already know. He told us a couple chapters ago. You reminded us here. And then that's where you're leaving us with Mephibosheth. I mean, there's something kind of dissonant about that. It's like unresolved somewhat, right? And I think that's so critical. Because I think as we step back and we see what David did, I mean, we say, man, what could you ask? for Mephibosheth more than what David did. I mean, what an incredible display of kindness. Like, how unbelievable. Like, how how radical was his kindness to this man. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. Like, wow, that is so great. But deep down inside of us, I think each of us say, but I just wish there was something more. I just wish there was something a little bit more that David could do. I mean, David, I I don't know what it would be. I mean, David did all that he could. I mean, uh, everything he had at his disposal, David did for this young man. But something deep down, I think, longs for something more, longs for, yes, but but, but but couldn't he like somehow no longer be associated with his bloodline? I mean, couldn't he walk around with the new name? I mean, couldn't he somehow be healed of his, of his lameness? Deep down, we're longing for a greater level of freedom than David could offer. And I think it leaves us there longing because we're longing for someone who's even greater than David. We're longing for the son of David. We're longing for someone who would come that shows the kindness of God with an even fuller, more thorough work than David could possibly do. We're longing for someone who comes from the line of David, who says what David did is just a hint of one to come. In fact, a couple hundred years later, it promised that this one, the son of David, would come, and he did come. Jesus Christ, the son of David, came, and it promised as the, over the next few hundred years as the prophets talked about who is it that is coming from the line of David. This is how they described the one who is to come. In Isaiah 35, it says this, Say to those who have an anxious heart... Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Yeshua, he will save you. Then watch, the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That is what the sun of David will do. He will do beyond what David could do. He will work miracles. When there was a, there was another Jonathan named John the Baptist, and his entire ministry was to say, "No, it's not about me. It's about the Son of David," and he pointed to Jesus. And at one point, John John the Baptist said, "Jesus." He sent a message to Jesus. He said, Jesus, are you really the one? Like when, we just need to know for sure, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus sent a message back to John. And he said, said to his messengers, tell them what you've seen. The blind can see and the lame can walk. He worked in power. See, Jesus can do what nobody else can possibly do. There is a power that Jesus can do that King David only hints at. The question is, do we believe that power to be released in our lives? What can Jesus do? David overlooked Mephibosheth's shame. But here, that's, that's what Jesus did more. I want you to write this down. This is what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't just overlook our shame. Jesus removes your shame. He removes it away. Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. And he takes all of our sin away. All of our guilt, all of our brokenness, and he took our shame on himself. What is shame? See, here's what the enemy does. Christian, you've got to know how shame works. There are things in our lives, there's things that we've done. There's the things that we have done, and, and when we square up to the fact that we've messed up and we've made mistakes, that's guilt, but then there are things that we have not done, things that have been done to us. There are things that, we, that are just injustices. Maybe it's, it's some, some type of abuse or neglect. There are things that have been done to us. Those are injustices. But shame takes either one of those categories and takes it another level. Shame is where we take those things we feel guilty about or these injustices we've suffered and they become our name. They become our identity. And there's the whisper of the enemy, the accuser in our ears. If anyone knew really what's happened to you, if anyone knew what you were struggling with, if anyone knew what you had done, they would never love you or accept you. And so this plays out in mental health, Christian. A Christian struggles with anxiety, and then on top of that, the enemy brings shame. I can't believe you're struggling with anxiety. I mean, if you were a real Christian, you would have the peace that passes understanding. But look at you. Do you not have enough faith if you just had enough faith? And so he takes our struggles with anxiety and pours shame on it, further isolating us from the power of God in our lives. Or maybe it's depression, and a Christian is walking through depression. I just, I, I have no joy. I just feel so helpless. Or maybe I'm, I'm having really dark thoughts that I don't know what to do. I have no hope, no joy, and I know that I'm supposed to have the joy of the Lord, and it's supposed to be my strength. and And maybe someone send me Bible verses, but they don't help. And I'm trying to pray, and I'm not getting help. And then the enemy comes in as an accuser and adds shame. What's wrong with you? If you were just as strong as so and so, then you wouldn't be struggling with depression anymore. And he piles on shame pushing us down till we're wearing it, till no one can know this because this is really who I am. Or maybe it's addiction. And maybe, Christian, as you've struggled with anxiety or depression, you've looked to things to help, um, help you with, with get through and help you make it, and you've looked through for things to, to, to numb the pain, to numb the anxiety, numb the depression. Maybe it's a, a chemical addiction or a sexual addiction or some kind of addiction. And on top of that struggle, on top of that is shame, where the enemy comes in and says, look at you, you're an addict. No one could love you. How could you do this? You're a disappointment. You failed. Don't ever tell anyone what you're struggling with. Keep it in the dark. And so now it's a combination attack keeping you isolated and in the dark. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, understand how the enemy works. He's piling on shame as if what's happened to you or the things that you've done, your guilt or the injustices in your life, are something that you're named for and you're wearing. And as you're limping with that brokenness, it is a marker of shame to you. But Christian, Jesus has removed all of your shame. That is not who you are. He's given you a brand new name, something David could not do for Jonathan's son. He's given you a new name. You've taken on his name, Christian. You are redeemed. You are the people of God. He has given you a new name. He took all of your shame, and how did he do it? The son of David took all of your shame on himself. He took it all on himself How valuable are you, Christian? As the enemy is is accusing you and telling you you're not valuable, how valuable are you? Look to the mutilated figure on the cross and see his blood rolling down, his barely recognizable body, down the cross and onto the ground, the blood soaked ground beneath him. And as you see him hanging there, mocked and ridiculed and naked and shamed, know that that was God's gift For you because he loves you that much he said I'm going to expend the treasure of the universe for your soul to take away your shame and because of that if you are in Jesus there is no condemnation for you Every morning there are mercies and grace renewed for you. You are justified in God's eyes as if you had never sinned in his eyes because you carry the righteousness of Christ. Do you believe that, Christian? That is who you are. Jesus doesn't overlook your shame. He removes it. But Jesus also does this. Jesus repositions your bloodline. That's not something David could do for Mephibosheth. But Jesus does something more for you. Maybe you can relate to Mephibosheth and you walk in a bloodline in a house marked by shame. And maybe you find yourself crippled in this life. Maybe crippled emotionally, crippled relationally, crippled with addiction, crippled with fears, crippled with a sense of self-worth. You find yourself crippled from the house that you come out of. But Jesus wants to change the story for your lineage with you. But not just for your descendants. He's going to roll it back to you and reposition you. David welcomed Mephibosheth to his table like a son. Jesus makes you a son. He makes you a daughter. He adopts you in, purchased by his own blood, and you have now become a legitimate child not of any other human father, but a child of almighty God, that's now your bloodline by the blood of Jesus. That's who you are. He makes you part of a family, a part of a church family. You're welcomed into a church family. And your family of God, that bloodline by the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is more powerful than any other blood in the world. That is more real about you than the earthly bloodline you're from. He's renamed you, he's actually made you such a legitimate child or daughter that he calls you an heir. What earthly kingdom could compare to what you are an heir, what you will inherit of the kingdom of the universe that the king of kings and lord of lords rules over? And he's made you a son and daughter of heir. That is who your family and your bloodline is. He's repositioned you beyond what you can possibly imagine. Jesus, he removes your shame. He repositions your bloodline. And lastly, Jesus redeems your brokenness. The passage ends with David did all of this but Mephibosheth was still crippled. Jesus is gonna take whatever brokenness you have, whatever emotional, mental health brokenness you have, and he will redeem it because that's who he is. He's a redeemer. Some, everyone will find healing from that brokenness In this life or the next, everyone will find complete and total healing at some point in our existence. Some will see in this brief life that we have, we'll see that miraculous power remove that brokenness from us here. Others of us, with the the much longer eternity that we will exist, will find that healing there when we enter into eternity. But all of us will find it redeemed. Do you know what it means when he's going to redeem it? It's not just that he's going to help it. He's not just going to help it along. He's not just going to resource it. He's not even just going to fix it. He's going to turn it back around to be one of the most glorious parts of your story. He's going to take your brokenness, and he is going to turn your story. Not just, I know there's tragic parts of your story, but we're going to make it to the finish line. No, he's going to redeem your story back around so that it is one incredible adventure story that ties up everything into something that you, better than you could imagine. He's going to work all of those things together for good. He's going to take those very ashes And he's going to actually turn them into something beautiful. He's going to turn them the ashes of mourning that you would put on your head. He's going to turn it into a glorious royal headdress. He's going to take that wound. He's going to do with you what was done to his body. At one point, the most painful, ugly, gross parts about him, his scars on his hands and his feet and his side, the most grisly mutilated parts of his body, When he was risen and redeemed, they became the markers, the most beautiful parts of who he is because it was those very scars he redeemed us with. And those scars that you bear, what Jesus can do that no one can do is he doesn't just fix them. He redeems them into the most beautiful parts of who you are. That's the power of your Jesus. That's what he wants to do in your life. The story of David just gives us a hint of what the son of David can do. Christian, that's the power offered to you. Some of you are on a mental health journey. Don't fall into shame. You are loved. You are valued. Bring your struggle out of the dark And let Jesus start working through your Christian community. Bring it into the light. Let Jesus work through your Christian leaders, ministry leaders in your life. Let Jesus work through a counselor in your life, a Christian counselor. There's so many here in South Florida. Bring it into the light because you no longer need to hide in shame. Bring it into the light and let Jesus go to work and redeem in your life. Christian, believe what Jesus says about you, that you're a son and daughter of the Most High. Believe what he's saying, those scars. Hold on to your hope, Christian, your expectancy that the story you might be in the valley of the shadow of death. This is not the end of the story. Wait for redemption. It is coming. Because Jesus is a redeemer. That is who he is. That is what he does. Hold on with hope and expectation. But there's many of you here, and you're, you're deeply on my heart this morning. And I, I talk as a pastor to many people who would walk away from this message misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. They walk away from this message saying, yeah, 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 I get it. I know, I know. I need to just kind of dial up the spiritual side of of my life a little bit more. Pray a little bit more. I should probably come to church a little bit more often. I I know what you're saying. You're telling me, like, I've got a lot of things in my life, but I need to make sure my, my life is well balanced. Like, I need to think... You know, about my life, I, you know, I, I've got my professional side, my personal side, I've got my financial side, and then I just can't neglect the spiritual side. Like, I need to dial that up, too, so I'm, I'm well-balanced. I, you know, I grew up going to church. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I want to make sure I go to church enough, and I'm, I'm a decent person, and so, like, you know, I, I just need to be a little bit more Christian, a little bit more spiritual, and so I'm going to dial that up. Please don't hear that today. Please don't hear that, because we are not talking about having a balanced life. We are talking about having a radically imbalanced life. Following Jesus is all or nothing. It is all or nothing. It's not a piece of your life. The Bible says when Jesus, who is your life, appears one day, he is returning. Jesus is to be your entire life. It is the foundation everything builds on. It's the thing that encompasses everything you are. It is not having a a little bit more spirituality, a little bit more Christian, a little bit more church. Those things will fail you. What you need is Jesus. Jesus is all of your life. Well, you sound like, I mean, when you say that, it sounds like you're telling me I'm going to have to surrender, like, a lot more. Like, I've got this part of my life. I've got how I spend my time and, um, you know, how, what I'm doing with my career and my money and my goals. Like, I've got all these things and my family, my relationships, my sexuality. I've got all these things. It sounds like, I mean, if I go there, that all or nothing, I'm going to have to surrender a lot more. No, you will have to surrender everything. Well, it sounds like there'll be, like, some changes in my life. I mean, I kind of like... The way my life is now, like some changes, like on my schedule and how I use my time and how I live. I mean, I like how I live. Am I gonna have to change some things? No, everything changes. He says he makes you a new creation. It says the creator of the universe comes in and starts transforming you from the inside out. Not what religion does where you start trying to change yourself from the outside in. No, he, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and changes you from the inside out. That's what we're talking about. You become something unrecognizable to the past you. That's what he's saying. It's making Jesus your king, making Jesus your Lord, giving the remote controls of every part of your life over to Jesus. It means a full, complete surrender to Jesus. It's realizing that you need to be saved. You can't do this on your own. Being a good Christian and going to church and being religious and being a decent person will not save you and get you to heaven. You and I need a savior. It's the work of Jesus on the cross, and his resurrection, that's what saves us. You say, well, why would I do that? My life's pretty good, like why would I do that? You would do that for a few reasons. One is because as you look at your life and the best you have been able to do, you say, I still want more. And when you realize the loving kindness of that King Jesus, the Son of David, you say, how could I not give my my life over to someone with that kind of loving kindness? And when you realize the power that Jesus died on the cross, taking all of your sin and shame and rose again from the dead, he defeated it. He wants to let loose that power in your life. Some of you need to turn from dabbling in Christian religion or having a Christian heritage. You need to reject that as not going to save you and make Jesus your king and your savior and fully surrender to him today. And watch with the loving kindness of the Son of David can begin to do in your life. Give your life to him. Can I lead us in a time of prayer? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Maybe there's a high school student here, or a young adult. Maybe you grew up here at City Rev. And you say, look, I think my faith has been my routine. And my parents' faith or my church's faith. Salvation doesn't come through association. Today you need to make your faith your own and surrender to Jesus. Maybe there's someone here who's here say, Hey, I'm I'm religious. I would call myself a Christian, but I've tried everything for my mental health, and I keep winding up brokenness. And I've tried talking to a friend, I've tried counseling, I've tried all these different things. and But maybe where you've never started, I mean, all of those things are important, do those things, but where it needs to start is a surrender to Jesus. It's imbalanced. It's giving him everything. Surrender to him today, would you please? Find salvation, truly. Give your life over to King Jesus. Here's what I wanna do. Um, If that's you, with no one looking around, if you wanna put your faith in Jesus, in a moment, I'm gonna invite you to lift your hand in the air. Whether you're here at the West Pines Campus or there in Cooper City or watching online, I want you just to put your hand in the air to say that today is the day I'm putting my faith in Jesus so you'll always remember this day. So today, if that's you, take that step. Find the loving kindness of your Savior, Jesus. If you want to take that step and find salvation, I want you to slip your hand in the air and put it back down. No one's looking around. Just extend your hand in the air and say, I want to find Jesus. You can do that now. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Anybody else here, Cooper City or online, you just say, hey, that's me. I I need to give my life all, everything. I need to surrender to Jesus. Just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. He sees it. If that was you, let me lead you in this prayer. Just silently there at your seat, just say this, Jesus, make these words yours silently to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for saving me. You are my king. I give my life to you. I surrender. Would you work in power in my life? I will follow you, my king. In Jesus' name. Hey, church, there were people who gave their life to Jesus today. Can we just celebrate that with them? Let's go. Hey, we're so excited for you to take that step. And listen, that's a very personal but not a private step. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. If that was you, if you're watching online, grab your cell phone. Go to cityrev.org faith. It's going to ask you some questions. We're going, to, we're going to ask you those because we want to mail you a Bible. If you're here, you can do the same thing on your phone. Go to cityrev.org faith, or you can grab that Get Connected card and take that with you to guest services. We'll put a Bible in your hands today. We want to celebrate with you. Church, we're going to close with a song, and we are going to celebrate that our Lord Jesus, he took on sin, he took on our shame, he took on death itself, and he defeated it. Christian. He defeated it. He rose again from the dead. Let's celebrate that power in our lives. Stay with me as we close. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.